words of the Lord, see the words of David, a prayer of David from 1 Chronicles 16, when he says this, sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day, tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. And then David gives us in prayer this instruction. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. You know, that word ascribe, that's kind of an old school Bible word that we don't use a lot in conversation, but sort of simply put, it means give God what he deserves. Give the Lord what he's worthy of. And it says, bring an offering. You may or may not have brought, brought a monetary offering this morning, but we can all bring an offering of worship and of praise. We can all ascribe to the Lord. We can declare in our hearts and the company of one another to him who we know him to be and what we know him to be like. And if you're sort of following the track of the songs we've been singing this morning, the scriptures have been read, and really even where we're going in the message, it's all about the greatness of God, that God is great and greatly to be praised. And just quietly now, not circling up, but just you before the Lord, there's really two ways that we can, and probably every time we gather, we should do that. This is just an opportunity for you to bring to the Lord an offering. He's just as pleased with it as anything you'd ever put in the box any good work you'd ever do, but first and foremost, he needs and deserves. He was worthy of our praise. And here's what I invite you to do just quietly before the Lord right now. Just simply start and finish the following prayer. Lord, I, I, have, I know that you are great because, or you have shown me even this week that you are great because, just you before the Lord, a moment of quiet, Tell him why you know, you agree with the fact that he is great and greatly to be praised. Lord, I know that you are great because so offer that up as a whispered prayer to him right now. There's another side to that that prayer, as I said, there's really two things we ought to acknowledge. I believe every time we come before the Lord this morning in terms of greatness, but really the two sides of, of the coin of the equation are always the same, whatever the theme of our prayers may be. Because life is joy and it's sorrow. Not always equal parts, but, but there's both. Every week has joy and sorrow in some way. If you've taken a moment to tell the Lord why you know he's great, I know you're great because... Maybe what you also need to acknowledge before him today is, I trust that you're great even though. Even though it wasn't a perfect week, even though things are tough in our home or work or school, just something in your heart. Would you just declare your trust, your confidence, his greatness this morning in that even though? Again, just quietly before him, the burden you carried in, Lord, I know you're great even though, even when. Let's do that right now.
Father, thank you this morning that, that you not only know that our lives, each and every one of them, are some strange and unique mix of joy and sorrow, of highs and lows, but, but you have promised in the person of your Son and in the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit to be with us in those joys and those sorrows in those declarations of greatness that come from a glad and, and thankful heart and in those declarations of trust that come in a, in a troubled and broken spirit. Father, your word even tells us that it is a broken and a contrite spirit that you desire, that those are the sacrifices that you're looking for from us. And so, Father, we bring all of that to you this morning, knowing that you are great, knowing that you are able, trusting that you are capable, that you have an answer for it all, that you're in charge of it all, that we can trust you with it all. And Father, somehow when we do that, what we find or what we ought to find is we can praise you even more because you are great and greatly to be praised. Father, thank you for this gathering today, this gathering that, that we call Maranatha Bible Church, but you look at us and call us children, sons and daughters. You call us your family through Jesus Christ. You've promised that though he is seated at your right hand, the Holy Spirit dwells within us and is present among us, and that he, above all others, any other, would be the one who teaches and guides and instructs us this morning. And we plead with him to do that. Fathers, we open your word now. I pray that the Holy Spirit, that he would, in fact, be the one to guide each and every one of us in truth, to guard each and every one of us from error and distraction, to deliver each and every one of us, Father, from whatever we carried, whatever baggage we carried in with us, whatever ache may be, lingering in our heart right now, and that he, above all else this morning, would enable us and help us to clearly see Jesus. So, oh, Father, we want to see Jesus clearly this morning in the preaching of your word. We want to see Jesus only this morning in the preaching of your word. And, and Father, we want to hear it and receive it and accept it so that we can walk out of these doors in a little while rejoicing. Not that we came to church and sang Christmas songs, but that we sat at the feet of the one who loved us enough to lay his life down and take it up again so that we could be yours. Father, it is Jesus we worship today, it is Jesus we seek today, it is Jesus we love today, and it is in the name of Jesus that we now pray, asking all these things as all God's people said together, amen, amen. You may be seated. And Once again, as always, as you're sitting down, boys and girls, you're free to go to make your way out to Children's Church have a good time there in God's Word as we seek to do the same here this morning. One more time, looking before we fully turn next Sunday our attention to Christmas, we're going to look once more this morning at Mark's Gospel. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want you to meet me uh, once again today in Mark chapter 12. Hopefully we're, we're scratching sort of the Christmas itch with Advent and some of the songs. Uh, we aren't yet quite turning there in the preaching, but starting next Sunday and then through the remainder of the the Christmas season, we will definitely be zeroing in on the birth of Jesus, as we should this time of year. But for now, we want to take one more look at Mark's gospel, just in God's plan and his timing. I believe this is where he wants us this morning, that he has something here for me, for you, for all of us as his people today. Mark chapter 12, as I said, is where we are. This ongoing, continual journey of following the Son, the Lord Jesus, as Mark records the story for us in his gospel. This morning I'm going to start reading in Mark 12, 35. It's a very short passage, just going to read down through 
verse 40. If you've not been with us recently or you have and have simply forgotten, Jesus is right now, it's the middle of Holy Week, of the Passion Week. So we're going to see, or I'll, I'll note as we work through the message, somewhere between 42, 48 to 72 hours from the cross, maybe less than that at this point. It's roughly Wednesday of the last week of Jesus' earthly life. He has been for some time now, as we've seen it over the last several weeks, he's been in the temple, he's been teaching, he's been answering questions, he's been confronting, he's been doing all sorts of things, and, and this really is his last public sort of message and instruction that he gives before he goes private for the last night of his earthly life with his disciples. And so we're seeing this series of conversations. You may remember that where we left off or where we were a week or two ago, we were told that after a certain confrontation, there had been several conversations going on, Jesus answering questions and answering them well, we saw at the end of last week's reading in Mark 12, 34, that after that, nobody asked Jesus any more questions. They were done. They were out of ammunition. They realized we can't match wits with this guy. And so what we're going to see now as we begin reading this morning is now that they're done asking questions, Jesus will start asking questions. Jesus is taking center stage. Not that he didn't have it already, but he's now taking the initiative. And here's where he begins as he goes through these final segments of teaching. As I said, I'm beginning reading in Mark 12, 35. I'm going to read down through verse 40 where this is what Excuse me, what the Word of God says. It says, And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. In his teaching, he was saying, Beware. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance' sake offer long prayers, for these will receive greater condemnation." You know, the great mystery of Christmas, the one that, as I said a moment ago, we are going to fully turn our attention to together starting next Sunday, but the great mystery of Christmas is this, that in Jesus Christ, God became a man. The mystery is that that little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger on that first, what we call the original, the first Christmas night, was in fact the almighty, eternal creator of all things. And that was a mystery that was only fractionally, if that, understood by a very few of those who were present for his birth on that particular night. And here in what we just read in Mark chapter 12, as I said a moment ago, roughly maybe 48 hours before going to the cross, what we need to understand before we get into the story is the very same mystery was being presented to the crowd in the temple. The mystery of Emmanuel. The mystery of God with us. 
Because in a roundabout way, it is, it's an indirect way, uh, it's not exactly clear on the surface, but it is very much what Jesus was doing. In a roundabout way, what Jesus is doing in these six verses we just read, and we're about to begin to walk back through, is he was asking the temple crowd there that day on Holy Week the same question he asked his disciples back in Mark chapter 8. That question was this, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Specifically, particularly, do you believe that I am Lord? Do you believe that I am Lord? And as such, because that's the question he was asking the crowd in the story we're about to look at, that is the question he's asking this crowd as we've gathered here this morning. Do you, I mean you, singular, right? Do I, do we believe Jesus is Lord? Do we believe that Jesus is Lord? Do we understand what it means that Jesus is Lord? And do we believe that Jesus is Lord? Because according to these six verses, according to the words of Jesus spoken on this occasion, if Jesus is Lord, it means at least a couple of things, all right? Actually, it means a lot of things. It means a whole lot of things, but for our purposes this morning, in these six verses, it means two. It's all I've got for you this morning, two things. Two things that it means if Jesus is Lord that you and I must reckon with if we are followers of the Son, Two things. The first one is this. In verses 35 through 37, the first thing it means if Jesus is Lord, if we say and we believe that Jesus is Lord, it is this. We must yield to his authority. If Jesus is Lord, first and foremost, you and I must yield to his authority. Let me ask you a question. Was anyone else, I'm just asking for honest, all right, show of hands, was anybody else besides me confused by what Jesus said in verses 35 through 37? Look again at your Bible. Anybody confused by Jesus' words? Because I was. In fact, I've been confused about what Jesus says in verses 35, 36, and 37 my whole life as long as I've read this story in the Bible. I have not been clear on what Jesus is talking about. Was it clear to you? Was it clear to you when Jesus said, look at what he said here again with me? Verse 35, Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? Everybody get that? Didn't get it, did you? No, it takes some digging. It is the language itself is confusing. And so I did some digging because I thought if I'm going to teach on it, I should probably understand it. And I've never understood it before. And I started digging and here's what I learned. Here is my best attempt to explain, because it's important, what Jesus was saying here and boil it down into as simple a terms as, fo- as possible. Here's what Jesus is saying. First of all, fact number one, he is saying this, that Messiah, the Messiah, when he comes, when he came, will be David's son. Fact number one, the Messiah will be David's son. Because you see, in those days, everybody in Israel was, of course, waiting for the Messiah. They'd been waiting for thousands of years. And and everybody in Israel waiting on the Messiah believed that when Messiah came, he would be a literal physical, biological descendant of their greatest king, King 
David. They believed in that sense the Messiah would be David's son. And they believed it because the Bible said so, because the Old Testament scriptures said so. Jeremiah 23 says so. Ezekiel 34 said so. Numerous other passages of scripture in what we call the Old Testament said he'd be David's descendant, David's son. Everybody there that day understood that that was part of the prophecy. But here's where Jesus began to make their heads spin. And ours as well, perhaps, as we read these verses. Because here's what he said. Let's walk through them a little bit more slowly now. Jesus began to say, again, verse 35, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? We've already established that. But Jesus is asking a question. How can they say that? Here's why he's asking the question. Because David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Now, that's where it gets murky, all right? That's where, if if you're confused, that's where the confusion comes. Here's what Jesus is saying. In verse 36, Jesus is quoting straight verbatim out of Psalm 110. If you were to turn, you don't need to, but if you want to, if you were to turn in your Bible to Psalm 110, you would see that it begins exactly the same way, but before even verse 1, it says this, a Psalm of David. So Psalm 110 was written by David. Jesus here in the temple is quoting that psalm word for word. And here's what he says. He says, in that psalm, David said something interesting. He said, walking through it again, look at verse 36. And he said it, by the way, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so it's true. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, now stop right there. In the original Hebrew, that was the word Yahweh. That's what was used for God. The Almighty, the Eternal, the Father, the Creator. We would call God the Father of the Trinity. The Lord said something to my Lord. Now, in the original Hebrew, David used a different word for Lord. He didn't use Yahweh or Jehovah. He used Adonai which can be ascribed to God, but it can also be used in other senses. But he's trying to say there's two different people here neither one of whom is David. The Lord said something to someone else David called Lord who wasn't the father. Does that make sense? David, or God said something to, to another Lord. And here is what he said to him, someone that David himself viewed as his own superior, someone between God the father and David the king. The Lord, God the father, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. In other words, God the Father told someone else, not David, I'm going to put the whole world under your authority. I'm going to put the whole world under your authority. And what what they did understand about that psalm, that verse, in those days is that that David again is talking about the Messiah. This other Lord is the Messiah, okay? But what they believed coming from that, the common Jewish assumption of the day, and this is fact number two, is that, that Messiah, fact number one, would not only be David's son, but when Messiah, Messiah, when he came, would also, fact number two, be David's Lord, okay? Fact number one, he'd be David's son. Fact number two, he would be David's Lord, which Jesus said in verse 37 is weird. It's confusing. Apparently, perhaps, I may be wrong, but apparently, perhaps, though they believed, perhaps, both of these things, Messiah will be David's son and Messiah will be David's Lord, no one, at least in this crowd, had apparently done the math and tried to put those two things together. Or if they had, they had not successfully done so, because here's the question, how is that possible? 
How can the Messiah, the promised one who is coming, be both David's junior in terms of age, but his senior in terms of authority? How's that possible? So Jesus is presenting them with a riddle. They thought they had good questions. Jesus has better ones. That's the question. And the very simple answer to that question is this. Now, granted, they could not grasp this in the moment. But we, with the benefit of the whole New Testament and 2,000 years of history, can. And what Jesus was driving at is, hey guys, here's what you need to know. Messiah will be both. That's the answer to the question. When Messiah comes, he will be both. He will be a literal, physical descendant, David's son. But he will be an exalted king. He will be David's Lord. He would be... This is the mystery of Christmas. Fully God and fully man. That is a mystery that as Christians we call the incarnation. Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus' implication, here's where the the sequence concludes. Jesus' implication was this. Again, not clear in the moment, but will become very clear in about 72 to, to, to the next 72 to 100 hours as he went to the cross and rose from the dead. Here is Jesus' stated implication. I am he. I'm the guy. I'm the man. Messiah will be David's son. I qualify. Messiah will be David's Lord. Guess what? I'm about to show you. I qualify. I am both. And I am he. That's what's going on here. That's what's happening in simple terms. It's the the what, if we ask the what question, of verses 35, 36, and 37, which you may find interesting, you may find not interesting whatsoever, but, but we have to, before we move on from the what, we've got to ask the most important question we can ask anytime we ever study God's word, whether alone or together, and it's this. So what? Say that with me. So what? It may be interesting information. Why does it matter? What should I do with it? How does it apply? And I raise the question because I think the answer is suggested at the end of verse 37. Look at the end of, of that verse. At the end of verse 37, here's what Mark notes. Jesus presents the riddle. David himself calls him Lord. What sense is he his son? We've just... Try to walk our way through that. Here's what Mark says. Here's his commentary on the scene. The large crowd enjoyed listening to him. The large crowd, there were disciples, there were Pharisees, there were followers, there were skeptics, there were enemies, all gathered. Large crowd in the temple court. They enjoyed listening to him. That's what Mark says. What didn't Mark say? Mark didn't say they believed in him. Mark did not say they trusted in him. Mark did not say they accepted his words or chose to yield to his authority. The reason I make that point, now that doesn't mean nobody there did. I don't know what everyone in the crowd, it's a large crowd. Probably lots of different people thought lots of different things. But as I see it, Because that's so, at the very least, it puts many, if not most, if not everyone there, perhaps other than the disciples, listening to him in the very same camp as the scribe we saw last week. Remember what his situation was? After he answered Jesus well, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're close, but you're not there yet. You are not yet saved. Now, Perhaps I'm reading too much into the end of verse 37. Maybe so. But I would submit to you this morning 
that the danger I'm alluding to is a danger you and I face every time we open the Word of God. Because think with me, and I don't mean this in a judgy way, I'm just saying this as fact, because I've been there so many times myself. How easy is it for us to do the very thing we're doing right now? Come to church on Sunday morning, open up our Bibles, follow along with the reading, listen to the message, write a few things down, hang in all the way to the big idea without drifting off to sleep, and find that it was a message we enjoyed listening to. The crowd enjoyed the message. I don't know, maybe you don't enjoy the message, but you keep coming back, and I'm grateful. But if not here, you've been somewhere where you've enjoyed listening to the teaching of God's Word. It's been good, interesting, challenging, motivating, thought-provoking, maybe a little bit convicting. But here's the danger. By the time the closing prayer ends, the danger that we face is that at the same time we close our Bibles, we also close our hearts. And not let what we heard actually change our lives. Get right up to that point. You're not far from the the kingdom of God, the next step, a breakthrough. But we stop. Why? Because whether we do it deliberately because our hearts are hard or unintentionally because we just missed the point, we fail to yield to Jesus' authority. We fail to yield to Jesus' authority and let what we've heard change us for his glory. I've done it. You probably have too. But here's here's the point. If Jesus is Lord, is Jesus Lord this morning? Yeah. If Jesus is Lord and we are his people, we must make this decision that when his word is opened, whether it is in my personal devotions or in the gathering of God's people, corporate worship, I'm going to hear what he says and I'm going to seek to act on it. If Jesus is Lord, we must do more than the crowd did here. We must yield to his authority. That's the very essence of what it means to be Lord. There are people, there are us, who follow him. And in this very simple back and forth in terms of the length of it, but very deep in terms of the content, that's the first thing I think Jesus is driving at here. If he is Lord, if he is who he says he is, and we believe he is who he says he is, the first thing we will do or we will seek to do, choose to do, is yield to his authority. But there's a second thing, and I believe equally important for us as followers of Jesus Christ in verses 38 through 40. It's sort of the other side of the coin of the equation, and it's this. First of all, if Jesus is Lord, we must, number one, yield to his authority. But the second thing we see, or at least that I see in this passage, that I want to deliver to you before we're done, is that if Jesus is Lord, secondly, and of equal importance, we can rest in his approval. We, you, I can rest. Everybody say rest. Rest. You like that word, don't you? Rest. I like that word. Rest. Rest. In his approval. You know, if you look again with me at these next three verses, Jesus transitions, Mark transitions. He says, Now, in his teaching, Jesus was saying, Beware. Now, that's not a word Jesus used often. He did use it a handful of times, but not very often. But wouldn't you agree with me when I say, If Jesus uses the word beware, we better pay attention, right? Because beware implies danger. Beware implies the possibility of trouble. And if Jesus sees trouble on the horizon, he's going to warn us. He's going to give us this beware, so that's what he says here. 
When, and, and I'm suggesting that whenever he does, as verse 38, you and I should pay attention because here's what he had to say. In his teaching, look at your Bible, Jesus was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater judgment. Now, to be clear, Jesus did not say, everybody say, Jesus didn't say, Jesus didn't say in these three verses, avoid all the scribes. He didn't say avoid all the religious leaders, avoid entirely the religious establishment. He said, watch out for some of them. He didn't say avoid them all. He said, watch out for some. He said, we have to make sure we're reading it correctly. Maybe you saw this the first time, but just in case you didn't, beware of this kind of scribe, okay? Beware of this kind of leader of person. In other words, all I'm trying to say is this. What Jesus says in these last three verses is not a blanket condemnation. It's a call to discernment. It's a call to discernment. Because while most of, or some of the religious leaders in his day, and we have examples as we read the other, some of the other gospels, there were some among the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees who, who were curious, who were seekers, who even maybe chose at some point, we have examples to follow Jesus, there were certainly some still in the religious establishment who really did want to know who Jesus was and if he was the Messiah. The vast majority in that day didn't. The vast majority of the religious establishment in Jesus' day, and it had been this way for generations, were in it for themselves. Some were in it for the Lord, others were in it for themselves. Perhaps you'll be surprised to know nothing has changed, right? There are spiritual leaders. There are recognized religious authorities. There are people in places of spiritual influence. Some of them are in it for the Lord. Others of those are in it for themselves. And so when Jesus said, beware to them, he is saying, beware to us. Be a discerning believer. And if that's so, since it was so then, and as I'm suggesting it's still so today, the logical question is this, how can we tell the difference, right? If Jesus says, beware, I want to beware. If Jesus says, watch out, I want to know what I'm looking for. And the answer is this. If you review the way Jesus describes them in these three verses, what you begin to see, and it's not hard to to recognize, is this. The scribes Jesus was concerned about, the religious leaders and authorities that Jesus was concerned about, were those who made sure the attention was always focused on who? Not a trick question, on who? On themselves, exactly. Somehow they made sure in leading the services, in speaking to the people, in their debates, which other people like to come and listen to, somehow the spotlight always managed to get turned back in their direction so that they're the stars, that they get the applause, that they get the affection and the attention of the people. And Jesus says, he's saying, beware of them. Look out for those guys, those gals who seem to always want it to come back to who they are. On the other hand, by implication, what Jesus is also saying is this, the spiritual leaders you can safely look to. Not accept everything verbatim without question, but the ones you can safely look to and listen to are those who, though they are far from perfect and they know it, 
who still battle with the flesh just as much as anyone else does, but you can pay attention to the ones who teach, who lead, who seek to live their lives in a way that is always turning the spotlight back to who? Back to, back to Jesus. They are not perfect. They will fail and disappoint you. But they keep going back to Jesus. In fact, that is the very... That is the very definition of what it means to be spirit-led, of what it means to be spirit-filled. Now, there's a lot more to being spirit-led and spirit-filled, but at the essence, it's that. Focus on Jesus. How do I know that? Because Jesus said so. Let me read you a couple of things he said a night or two later. John records us for them in his gospel, so you can follow along. We'll throw them up on the screen. But on the last night of his life, as he's preparing to leave, here's what Jesus says in John 14, verses 25 and 26. He said these things, and he had said a lot of things already, but he said, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But again, the implication, he's already said it, he's going away. He says this, John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. One chapter later, exactly one chapter later, in case we missed it the first time, he says it again in 1526. Look, follow along there. It says, when the helper comes, whom I will send you. So the Father sending him, the Son is sending him from the Father. That is the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about who? What does Jesus say? He will, te- it's up there, right? He will testify about me. me. See, the Holy Spirit has a lot of jobs. Holy Spirit has a lot of responsibilities, a lot of things he does, but you know what his number one job is at all times? The number one job of the Holy Spirit is to fix attention on Jesus. To fix attention entirely on Jesus. Not on a preacher, not on a teacher, not even on himself. Not even on himself. If it's always all about the Holy Spirit, it's really not the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit came for one reason, to glorify Christ. Because Christ is the one who died for us and rose from the dead. He is not inferior to him, but he serves the role of magnifying and glorifying him. Pointing to Jesus. And that's how you know, by implication, who you should listen to and who you shouldn't. Are they pointing you to Jesus? Because if they are, they're being led by the Spirit, directed by the Spirit. However, in failingly they may do so, they're still doing it. Simply put, the easiest way to tell if a spiritual leader deserves your attention is not where they went to school. It's not how they dress. It's not their speaking style. It's where they tell you to look. Look to Jesus. To look to Jesus. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, beware. But you know what? It's not all he meant when he said, beware. I think there's something else here too, another warning, that there are two dimensions to this one beware, at least with respect to unrighteous, untrustworthy scribes, that is, spiritual leaders. 
The first thing, we just talked about it. The first part of the beware that Jesus is giving here about those who are unrighteous or unfaithful or ungodly religious spiritual leaders, he says, watch out for them. Make sure, number one, they don't lead you astray. But you know what the other thing I believe he is suggesting or hinting at here as well, and the Bible backs it up? It is this. Beware, not only that they don't lead you astray, beware equally so that you don't become like them. That I, that you that we don't become like them. Because while we're not all recognized as spiritual leaders, not everybody in the room is a pastor, elder, deacon, Sunday school teacher, whatever it is, evangelist, we're not all necessarily in a position, an acknowledged position of spiritual leadership or authority. You know what is true about every single one of us in the room today? We all crave somebody's approval. We're all craving somebody's approval. That, that's the deal with the scribes here. That's why I'm saying this. What did they want? They wanted to walk around the marketplace and people bow down. They wanted to go places and be treated with dignity and respect. They wanted everybody to know that they were better than, than you. They were craving approval. And you know what? I crave approval. You crave approval. Somebody's approval. And, and a lot of times, the story of your day, the story of your week, the story of your life is whether or not you're getting it, and I'm going to act accordingly. I'm going to respond to it based on whether I'm getting it or not. We all want somebody's respect. We all want somebody's admiration. We all want somebody's attention. Again, that's what the scribes were after here, and guess what? In that sense, we're just like them. And so if nothing else I've said this morning makes sense to you, and there's a fair chance that that's so, but if there's nothing else I've said this morning that makes sense to you, if there's nothing else I've said this morning that speaks to you, please hear this, okay? Please hear this. As a follower of the Son, as a believer, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, can I tell you something? You already have his approval. You already have his approval. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells me so. Romans 8 says that you and I as believers are no longer under condemnation. 2 Corinthians 5 says you're a new creature in Christ. And by the way, in addition to that, an ambassador for him as well. 2 Corinthians 6 says that you are his child. If you're a believer, you are a son or a daughter of God most high. Matthew 5 calls us salt and light. Ephesians 1 says we have been lavished with the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2 says we've been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And in 1 Peter 2, talking about all of us together, Peter says that in the eyes of the Lord, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. If that is not approval, tell me what is. You've got his approval. You're his. You're his. You're his. And here's what I'm saying. When we truly begin to take such promises by faith, and that's how we have to take them, by faith. When we truly begin to take such promises by faith, let me ask you something. Why would we ever care about anybody else's opinion? Why do I need your approval? I have God's. Now, I, I want to be your friend. I want to be liked. I want to be, 
want to be a good guy and, and, and have good relationships, but ultimately the only approval that matters is his. And you've already got it. You've already got it. If Jesus is Lord, yes, we must yield to his authority, but yes, we can rest in his approval. You don't have to prove anything to him. You just have to walk with him day by day. So beware, 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 beware. You don't go fishing for it somewhere else because it will disappoint. Much more, it may destroy. Rest in his approval. Now, I will be the first to admit that we haven't even truly this morning scratched the surface of what it means to say, to believe, to confess that Jesus is Lord. But if Jesus is Lord, and he is, if Jesus is Lord, here's what I want you to imagine before we close. And remember, the danger I talked about at the beginning, that we shut our hearts off before we're done, okay? So let's stay open for another minute. Here's what I want you to do. I invite you to do. I need to do. Imagine how different your life would look tomorrow. Today, if you resolved to wake up each morning and be mindful throughout the day, now that's not an easy thing to do, but even so you resolved to live, to function, to go through the day, number one, I will yield to his authority. I'll remember he's in charge. I'm nobody else's mama. I don't have to fix their problems. I don't have to change their life. I don't have to make them the way I want them to be. God's in charge. I don't have to fix everybody. I wake up every morning, yielded to his authority. Where he leads me, I will go. What he asks, I will do. And resting in his approval. Resting in his approval. Because you know what that does among many other things? It frees you up to serve the people around you in love rather than work and scratch and claw for their acceptance, for their blessing, for their smile. How different would your life look tomorrow? How different would it look seven days from now? I'm telling you, I think it would look different. I think you would be a different person seven days from now if for the next seven days you woke up each morning and went through the day. Write one on your left wrist and one on your right. Yield to his authority, rest in his approval. You will be a different person in Jesus Christ as a result because the Holy Spirit lives within you and you're yielding to him. And that's why the big idea of the message this morning is this. It's a challenge, it's an invitation, as the case may be, it's a plea. Could we all just let the fact that Jesus is Lord be enough? How about we let the fact that Jesus is Lord be enough? You say, be enough for what? For everything! For you, for me, for him. We live for him, and he is the Lord. Let's bow together in prayer for a moment. And if I'm going to practice what I just preached, then we need to pause with our heads bowed and our hearts quiet. And not just contemplate, but decide, is there a way I need to respond, not to what Aaron said, but to what the Spirit said through the preaching of the Word. What I want to invite you to do for a moment, again, it's just you and the Lord. Is there a place that as he speaks to you right now, and maybe you need to say, Holy Spirit, search my heart. 
or you are not yielded to his authority. You say, I'm going to give him all that, but this thing, this relationship, this attitude, this choice, it's still mine. Can I tell you something? It's going to eat you up. It's going to eat you up. Is there a place where you need to say, Lord Jesus, in this today, I yield, maybe yield all over again to your authority. There's a place where you need to do that right now. Before the Lord, in the quietness of your heart, say, Lord, today, you know, everything inside me says, no, I'm going to say yes, and I'll yield it to you. Yield to your authority, Lord. In similar fashion, of equal urgency and importance, is there a sense in which you need to all over again for the first time, probably not for the last time, but, but in this moment, decide once again to rest in his approval? You are not who somebody told you you once were. You are not who the voice in your head tells you you are when it cries failure, broken, worthless, not good enough. My Bible says, and yours does too, that we have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that means we are accepted and we are loved as much as he loves his own son. Now, not when we get to heaven, it's true today. If you've been seeking approval and affection and acceptance somewhere else, acknowledge it to him. Confess it as sin. Say, Lord, teach me, help me rest in your approval alone that who you have made me and how you have created me is enough. Choose right now to rest in his approval. Father, you know our hearts. You know us far better than we know ourselves. We're not nearly as objective or clear-headed as we think we are. And Father, we've, we've bought into all sorts of substitutes and alternatives for what it means to know and love and walk with you. Father, we, as believers, there is a desire. You have placed it within us because your spirit lives within us to yield to you, and yet the flesh wars against it. Father, would you help us, would you enable us not even to wait till tomorrow morning, but even in this moment. To look to you, to look to Jesus. And say, Lord, I yield to your authority. Remind me to yield to your authority. And Lord Jesus, enable me to rest only in your approval. And who you said, I am in Christ. Father, I pray you take the things of truth that have been spoken here this morning and that you'd seal them deeply firmly in our hearts, and that you would cause all the rest to fade away so that we do live, live and leave following, seeking, resting in Jesus only, in whose name we pray. Amen.